This is class number 10, The Rise of Protestantism. We're going to be looking at two emphases uh, which propelled the Protestant movement forward. Uh, one was evangelical and the second was prophetic. The evangelical emphasis came out of the Great Awakening as people who began to read Jonathan Edwards's works began to adopt a post-millennial viewpoint that the movement of the Holy Spirit in their time period was now uh, a demonstration that likely the return of Christ was at hand and to hasten the return of Christ uh, was to get the message of the gospel out to all people and all nations. Um, this evangelical emphasis led to a rise in foreign missions. Secondly, uh, the prophetic element during this time period was a rise in emphasis on eschatology or the study of end times and particularly the concept of the millennium. The millennium uh, is the first aspect that we're going to look at uh, this morning. Uh, we want to ask ourselves, what is the millennium? The word millennium means 1,000 years, and the term comes from Revelation 20, 4 through 5, where it says that certain people came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Just prior to the statement, we read that the angel came down from heaven, seized the devil, and bound him for a thousand years, and then threw, threw him into the pit, shut it, sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. This concept of a thousand years has been a debated topic throughout the history of the church. There have been three major views of this time period and its nature. Uh, they are noted by their prefixes, a, pre, and post, and we attach these to the word millennium, and so we have amillennialism, premillennialism, and postmillennialism. Uh, just to define these for us, amillennialism means none, uh, referencing the A, the Latin negation uh, prefix, prefix. And this view sees the present church age as the time of Christ's rule, as Satan's influence over nations has been greatly reduced so that the gospel can be preached to the whole world. A pre-millennial position adopts a beforehand return of Christ viewpoint and teaches that Jesus will rule at some point in the future. He will bind Satan for a period of exactly or approximately 1,000 years before the end. Postmillennialism, uh, the word post meaning after, is a position uh, believed that the church will gradually permeate and transform the world and this position teaches that Christ will return following uh, a general resurrection, judgment, and then an introduction of heaven and hell in their fullness. Now, these categories are important to understand because Christians have had different viewpoints 
about this concept of the millennium that's spoken of in the book of Revelation and seems to be alluded to at various points in Old Testament prophecy. At various seasons in the church, uh, some parts of the church have held to all three of these views in some form. And so I'm going to try to give you a brief sketch from the patristic era, uh, the time of the early church, up through the Reformation and post-Reformation eras leading into the 19th century, and the advance and the, um, the growth of foreign missions. Uh, starting with the patristic period, that's the early church leading up to the 5th century, uh, scholars have um, generally agreed Scholars of a systematic theology or patristic studies have generally agreed that the earliest view of end times in the church was premillennialism. Uh, Philip Schaff, who is a, in his own perspective, is a non-premillennialist, uh, has said objectively that the most striking point in eschatology, or the the end time uh, doctrine, of the pre or excuse me, of the anti-Nicene age, that is before the Council of Nicaea, he said it's the, it is the prominent millenarianism, that is the belief of a visible reign of Christ in, the glory, in glory on earth with risen saints for a thousand years before the general resurrection and judgment. Some of the early church fathers who held to this position uh, were Justin Martyr, Clement, Lactanitus, Victorinus, among others who explicitly held this viewpoint. It's important to note that this was a scattered perspective uh, in the early church uh, with, some, with some geographical representation. Justin Martyr, for example, wrote in Dialogue with Trypho, he said, quote, But I and others who are right-minded Christians on all points, are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead and a thousand years in Jerusalem, which will then be built, adorned, and enlarged as the prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah and others declare, unquote. Uh, as you can see, uh, Justin Martyr uh, identified with the Jewish hope, and we need to also um, make sure that we understand that even though there was scattered representation of this view in the early church, it never rose to the level of a, a church creed like the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, there were other views that were also appreciated uh, during this time period, um, but this was uh, not as great an issue as the debate over the Trinity. And another particular reason was that the church in general was underneath of persecution and views about the church or the future were not as important as simply survival. But by the time the church began to rise to ascendancy in the medieval period, which I'm classifying as the 5th century, as the establishment of the church up through uh, the Reformation, the church began to favor an all-millennial perspective because of the influence of, of Caius, Origen, Dionysus the Great, Eusebius, Jerome, and the heavyweight Augustine himself. The major problem that Augustine had with premillennialism was the idea that Christ's reign would 
last only a thousand years rather than being eternal. To him, it seemed contrary to the teachings of Scripture that the Messiah would rule forever. It seemed to him uh, a misplaced emphasis that this rule was yet to come and uh, had a limited physical duration on, on the earth. But Augustine's concerns, uh, as such they were, also was most heavily influenced by some who were projecting into a millennial kingdom extreme luxury and sensual delight uh, due to his own personal difficulties with sexuality. It's very likely that his sensitivity directed him away from uh, these conclusions and um, Augustine rejected a future thousand-year reign and began to teach that the present age itself was the millennium with ever-increasing influence of the church. And that age began with Pentecost and would, would end with the return of Christ. Um, after the year 1000 AD, the thought of a literal thousand year began to fade due to the significance of reaching that millennial mile marker, and steadily there shifted to a non-literal thousand-year reign perspective. Again, I want to note that Augustine himself had been a premillennialist in principle, but he said this, quote, the opinion, or this opinion, of a future literal millennium after the resurrection might be allowed if it pro proposed only spiritual delight unto the saints during this space. And we were once of the same opinion ourselves, speaking of his own perspective. But seeing the confessors hereof affirm that the saints after this resurrection shall do nothing but revel in fleshly banquets where the cheer shall exceed both modest and modesty and measure, this is gross and fit for none but carnal men to believe. And so Augustine was advancing an amillennial position, and it prevailed during the scholastic period of the church just before the Reformation, and in the scholastic period, the church adopted a new method of interpreting scripture and gave preference for what was called the four senses of the scripture. And this consisted of a, an interpretive framework in which they would look at scripture and they would look at what it was saying literally and where, where it could be observed that there was a literal um, perspective, they would allow it to stand, but then they would move into an allegorical sense, and then a moral sense, and then finally an analogical sense. Uh, there was a little rhyme that uh, was developed, or, or, or poetry, uh, during that time period in which they said, the literal teaches history, the allegorical, what you should believe the moral, what you should do, and the analogical, where you are going. For example, in the temple, uh, passages where there is description of the literal dimensions and uh, functions and priesthood of the temple, there was an understanding that it was teaching the history of the temple itself. Yet, they did not leave it there, and they understood that there was an allegorical presentation that would find its fulfillment ultimately in Jesus being the true temple.
they then thought through the moral aspects. Well, what should this do for you? Thinking of Jesus as the temple, and you are part of his member, you are part of his, his superstructure, uh, and therefore you are also a temple of the Holy Spirit, and that should give a perspective to how you ought to live towards holiness. The analogical view is kind of that future look of where you're going, and they anticipated uh, a new temple, a new Jerusalem descending as spoken of in Revelation 21 and 22, and Emmanuel, God, dwelling with us in a new kind of temple. Now, uh, this system is, uh, was used during this time period, um, and anything that was not clearly historical tended to be read along the allegorical, moral, and analogical perspective and this tended to lead people further to take the thousand years as a symbolic uh, presentation of a, just an a, a indefinite long period of time that was hard to wrap your mind around. Um, and so this brings us up to the Reformation. After the Reformation, the scholastic method of interpretation went under re-examination. New methods were being applied to read prophecy. And although this was a period of flux, crucial doctrines of the church were being debated by Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli. Debate over justification by faith, the nature of the church, the Lord's table. And through this process, the reformers began to re-examine some key elements uh, like the Antichrist and began to think about the prophetic weeks in the book of Daniel. Some reformers began to think of... Uh, the Catholic Church and the Pope himself as being the Antichrist. And some began to chart uh, its time and fall by the three, uh, 1,335 days or years referred to Daniel, and they started to project a timeline into the future based upon the establishment of Gregory the, the Great as the first Pope over the Church and began to chart dates that would lead into the 21st century as a potential conclusion of this time period. Uh, but that was a scattered perspective, nothing formally codified. It was speculation, and people were began to re-examine the scriptures. And, but the main emphasis during that time period was not so much matters of eschatology, so much as issues related to salvation, and covenant theology. Covenant theology is a system of organizing the scripture around two major covenants to make sense of the, the redemptive history that we read about in the scriptures. Uh, the first covenant was saw as being framed in the garden as a covenant of works. And after man fall, and even knowing that man would fall, God had predetermined to set up a covenant of grace with Christ, out of which people would be saved. And out of this covenant of grace, through the history of the world, uh, they began to talk in terms of dispensations or time periods of administration during the covenant of grace in which God cared for the world and led it ultimately to the coming of Jesus Christ. And um, this, this, this new way of thinking 
in regard to covenants and dispensations in the covenants led others to begin to posit new theories and to think through dispensations and ages in which God administered his grace through time. For example, John Edwards, not Jonathan Edwards to be, to be clear, John Edwards, a Calvinistic minister in the Church of England, published an 800-word work called A Complete History or Survey of All the Dispensations. His purpose was to display all the transactions of divine providence as related to the methods of religion from the creation to the end of the world. Another person who began to, to kind of think through world history and biblical history was Isaac Watts. Uh, he wrote a 40-page essay called The Harmony of All the Religions Which God Ever Prescribed to Men and All His Dispensations Towards Them. And uh, all the religions, in other words, he was saying there were specific guidelines for how to relate to him that were seen through Scripture. And he began to analyze um, uh, breaks and changes in time leading up to ultimately Christ. And these dispensations began to take a form. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called The History of the Work of Redemption, and he also outlined dispensations in which God dealt with man to test their hearts to see what was in them. And it was during this period of the post-Reformation development in the late mid to late 1700s, uh, churches began to experience awakenings and began to read the scriptures along a post-millennial perspective in which the true church would be triumphant over the false church, that is, from their perspective, Roman Catholicism. And at the end of this area, there would be a demonstration of the Spirit and a universal salvation of the Jews. And then Christ would return after the millennial, millennial era of the church had come to end. It's not hard to see why this perspective uh, fueled international missions. After the Civil War in America, this new post-millennial way of looking at the millennium began to grow in popularity, largely due to the network of D.L. Moody. It was a premillennial version, though, that was called dispensationalism. Dispensationalism, a modification of the covenant of grace, uh, was the focus in a greater uh, uh, emphasis upon the subunits of God's administration through time. And in this viewpoint, uh, there was seen to be a, a break in God's dealing with Israel. There were 69 weeks leading up to the Messiah, but then there was this one week that seemed to be out of place. And in a dispensational mindset, that last week was representative of a final week at the end of the church age in which God would renew his uh, focus upon uh, Israel uh, just before his final return. Prior to this seven-year period, there would be a removal of the church uh, through a general rapture and resurrection and uh, a final uh, coming of Christ at the end of the seven years. Prior to the American Civil War in the 1830s, an Anglican minister, John Nelson Darby, founded this new movement, um, and he was able to systematize and disseminate his system. And it's important to understand that it was not identical 
to a later Presbyterian minister, C.I. Schofield. Uh, there are differences between Schofield's system and that of John Nelson Darby. Um, within all of the perspectives and attempt to lay out dispensations through the centuries, there are some similarities, but also differences as well. During the late 19th century, after the Civil War, during the Gilded Age of the uh, Industrial Revolution, Bible Conference began to pop up and provide interdenominational networks to discuss uh, social themes, but also to, to discuss biblical themes of inerrancy and also Bible prophecy, uh, doctrines of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And one of the most famous Bible conferences during this period was begun in 1875 by Presbyterian minister James H. Brooks from St. Louis. And he established a conference called the Niagara Bible Conference. A few late years after his founding of it, in 1878, 14 fundamental beliefs were established by evangelical leaders at that time uh, to be a basis for uh, a defin defined uh, inclusion and exclusion. Uh, during that time period, the 17, or 1870s and early 1880s, the conference moved to Niagara-on-the-Lake, Ontario, and this Bible conference uh, conducted a series of teaching on the Bible and prophecy and spread the ideas of dispensational thought uh, throughout America as many thousands of ministers uh, came from all over to southern Ontario to, to participate some of the additional movements that occurred during this time period, the YMCA uh, also was influential through D.L. Moody and also further uh, perpetuated the dispensational uh, system. During this period, Bible schools also began to be founded and quickly trained men and women for church ministries. Um, Wheaton College was founded uh, during this time period of the late 1880s, or excuse me, uh, he, the first Bible college in 1860s, excuse me, was Wheaton. Nyack College was founded by A.B. Simpson, who was a dispensationalist in 1882. Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, 1887, uh, by D.L. Moody, who was also dispensational. Uh, there were large, large protest movements uh, during this time period as People began to recognize the encroachments of secularism in the state and mainline Protestant schools. And through the early 20th century, many more uh, schools, colleges mushroomed across America as denominations embraced new liberal theology. So I've given you kind of a very broad overview of the development of the ideas of the millennium. This is significant as it relates to our congregation and the heritage out of which our statement of faith has been crafted with an eye towards uh, a dispensational end time view. In fact, one of our early, our, actually our founder, Ross Pizarro, had been a graduate of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And when he established the church, he intended to establish it as a dispensational uh, uh, church. Um, we have also been quite active in missions, and so I'm going to shift gears now to think of the second major emphasis. Uh, William Carey um, is often credited as being the father of modern mission movement. Carey was born in England in 1761. He was uh, 
at the at, after his birth. He he didn't have a lot of education, but he had a grammar school education. He worked as a cobbler who made and mended shoes, and he also pastored a Baptist church in Northampton, England, and taught at a school. He always kept a book next to himself, and he on his workbench while he was working, he he taught himself Dutch, uh, French. Latin, and several Indo-European languages. Uh, he is well known for his contribution to missions because in 1792 he published a, a short work called An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. Carey recounts being fascinated by a bi biography of James Cook that was published in 1788 and also Jonathan Edwards's account of the life of the late Reverend David Brainerd. In that volume uh, by Edwards, Edwards detailed the missionary activity of Brainerd to reach Native Americans in the New England colonies. And through his own personal study of scripture, Carey became convinced that Matthew 28, 18 to 20, known as the Great Commission, was binding on all churches and Christians even today. And there seemed to be a remaining unfulfilled aspect if people groups around the world had never heard the gospel before. So when he published these, his thoughts on this, it was a bombshell. And two key words in his, in his uh, title were that of obligation and means. And he writes, I shall inquire whether the commission given by our Lord to his disciples be not still binding on us, take a short view of former undertakings, give some account of the present state of the world, consider the practicality of doing something more that that is done, and the duty of Christians in general in this matter. And so, as he walks through his little book, he challenges his own countrymen to give recognition to the fact that they have had the means of grace for many years and that while some might argue that it was more important to spend time focusing on the continual education and development of their own people, um, he argued that people have, have been saturated with the Word of God and they have the opportunity, whereas others in other nations have no opportunity. And so it might be a more useful uh, use of time to engage uh, areas of the world that have nothing. Um, and so it was a bombshell book. Um, it encouraged uh, the organization of a society for the purpose of sending and supporting missionaries. And he and 14 other Baptist ministers, um, including John Ryland, Andrew Fuller, William Stoughton, they formed an association called the Particular Baptist Society for the Propagation of the Gospel Among the Heathen, which was later renamed the Baptist Missionary Society. Carey, uh, after he felt the call, a year later, in 1793, a year later after publishing this book, Carey left England for India as the first missionary of this Baptist society for missions. He would never return home again, and he died in 1834 among the people he had given his life to reach with the gospel. In India, Carey preached, he taught, translated the Bible into Sanskrit, and during his years in India, he translated the Bible into Bengali, Oriya, Marathi, and Hindi, Assamese, and Sanskrit. Uh, 
it's striking uh, to see how how much he contributed to Bible translation. Although he had a lot of suffering, when he went to India, the East India Tea Company made it difficult for him because they were fearful of alienating the local populations. And yet through this whole time period, Carey faced periods of depression and loneliness. He suffered the loss of his wife, Dorothy, who had been reluctant to go to India. Uh, she didn't adapt well to the life in India and eventually lost her mind after a child died and several and having several fevers herself. Uh, it was a very difficult decision to take her to India. And uh, through the years, uh, people have wondered whether it was appropriate for him to do so for his family or her family, that is, uh, for five generations had lived within 10 miles of the same location in England. Uh, when she, and that would have been very difficult for her. When he remarried, his second wife died as well, and he buried three children on the field and faced constant illness and labored for seven years before seeing his first Indian convert uh, baptized. Three years before his death, he wrote this letter to his son. I am this day 70 years old, a monument of divine mercy and goodness, though on a review of my life I find very much, for which I ought to be humbled in the dust. My direct and positive sins are innumerable. My negligence in the Lord's work has been great. I have not promoted his cause, nor sought his glory and honor as I ought. Notwithstanding all this, I am spared until now, and am still remain retained in his work. And I trust I am received into the divine favor through him." I wish to be more entirely devoted to his service, more completely sanctified, and more habitually exercising all the Christian graces and bringing forth the fruits of righteousness to the praise and honor of that Savior who gave his life a sacrifice for sin. When Carey died June 9, 1834, these simple words were inscribed upon his tombstone, A wretched, poor, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. His son Eustace recounted in his biography uh, that he had once said to him, Eustace, if after my removal, uh, that is after his death, anyone should think it worthy to while to write my life, I would give you a criterion by which you may judge of its correctness. If he gives me credit for being a plotter, he will describe me justly. Anything beyond that will be too much. I can plod and can persevere in any definite pursuit and to this, I owe everything. Uh, William Carey was a strong Calvinist, um, but that didn't stop his missionary zeal. And his life was spent for the sake of Christ and the gospel. And his writings inspired a generation of missionaries, not only from England, but also in the United States. And to that geography, we will now turn to Adoniram Judson, who was an early American uh, missionary often called the father of American missions. Uh, missionary activity had been going on for a long period in the U.S., uh, but international missions had not really occurred at this point. Uh, in the colonies, uh, John Elliott was a Puritan missionary to the Native Americans in Massachusetts. Likewise, who we've mentioned, David Brainerd, whose biography inspired Carey to pursue missions, served as a missionary to the Delaware Indians in New Jersey in the 18th century. George Lyle uh, was also a missionary, a former slave who brought the gospel to Jamaica. 
and he planted the East Queen Street Baptist Church in Kingstown. And over the course of eight years, he baptized over 500 persons, sending them out as missionaries to Georgia, to Nova Scotia, and to Sierra Leone. William Carey brought an awareness of the gospel need uh, on the other side of the world and captured the American evangelical con conscience as early as the 1800s. And the forefront among this endeavor was Adoniram Judson, who was born August 9th, 1788, in Malden, Massachusetts, to Adoniram Judson Sr., who was a congregational minister. Uh, his father raised him in a godly home. He was a brilliant young man. He entered Brown University at age 17. But at that time, he went to college. Um, many of the colleges were beginning to embrace skepticism and deism, and he did as well under the, close, uh, under the influence of a close friend whose name was Jacob Ames. He graduated valedictorian of his class, and Judson returned home to teach. And all the while, he kept rejecting the Christianity that he had inherited from his parents. Eventually, he found his father's preaching and their family religion so oppressive, he resolved on his 20th birthday to travel to New York City and take, a life, take up a life on the stage and becoming a writer. Now, at that time, New York City was considered to be a pit of immorality, and uh, it is at times even known as such today. But when he told his parents his plans, they were incredibly doubtful, and they pressed him on his calling, his devotion to the Lord, and suddenly he exploded. He denounced his father, his parents' faith as wishful thinking, foolish mysticism, mysticism, and he overpowered his father's arguments and smugly reduced him to a sorrowful silence. And then he left behind his weeping mother and broken father and literally demanded his inheritance in the form of a horse and set out for New York City like the prodigal son. He resolved never to return home. Well, on the way to New York City, Judson, Judson, um, uh, excuse me, after spending a significant time in New York City, he, he did not make a very good go of it, and he returned, he resolved like the prodigal to return home. And on his way home, he entered an inn, only to learn that the only room available to him next door was that of a dying man. The innkeeper warned him that it might make it an unpleasant night. No, said Judson, still committed to his philosophical stoicism and disregard for death. A few sounds next door won't deny me a night's rest. But all night long he tossed and turned, unable to sleep because of the noise that was coming, the footsteps coming and going, and the cries and wails of the dying man. Eventually he fell asleep, and he woke up, and he kind of chuckled to himself about how, how weak he was in the face of death uh, that night. And as he was settling Bell, he was surprised to hear the man, the manager of the, from the manager that the man next door to him had died. Dead? Judson asked. Did you know him? Oh yes, the manager replied. He was a young man from the college in Providence, and his name was Ames, Jacob Ames. That was his very friend who had influenced him to become a deist. And deeply shaken, Judson returned home. He renounced his deism, and from that point on, his whole life changed, and he enrolled in Andover Theological Seminary, and he received a special entrance 
because he, at that moment, was still undecided. He knew he wanted to renounce, but he didn't feel like he had been totally converted yet. And in his second year of seminary, Jensen became aware of his own uh, need and completely came to a close with Christ and felt that he was completely converted. And Judson became aware as well for the need for foreign missions. He had read about William Carey and, and who brought the gospel to India. And he says he studied the geography and the nations of the East. Judson soon resolved to become a missionary in the kingdom of Burma, a completely unreached Buddhist country. And the Judson set forth to go to Mur Burma. Next few years were busy for him. He graduated from seminary. He married a young woman named Anne, or as he called her, Nancy. And among, along with several other students, including Luther Rice, uh, they organized an American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions and organized the first uh, United States um, uh, contingent set out to, to go as missionaries. But before marrying Anne, Adoniram sent, sent a legendary letter to her father asking for his permission to take her to the other side of the world. He wrote, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want, distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who has left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of the perishing, immortal souls, for the sake of the Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness, brightened with acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior? from heavens saved, from, from heathens saved, through her means, from eternal woe and despair. And her father obviously allowed her to go. And on February 19th, 1812, Judson set sail with the caravan. His boat was called the caravan, and they set sail uh, together with Luther Rice and Samuel and Harriet Newell. And their plan was to travel to Sarampore and there unite with William Carey and then go on eventually to Ragoon, uh, Burma. While on, on the boat to India, however, Adoniram Judson began to wrestle with the issue of baptism. They were all Congregationalists. And like Jonathan Edwards, they had practiced infant baptism. But Judson knew he'd soon be meeting William Carey, a legendary Baptist famed for his knowledge of the Scripture, and he began to investigate the Scripture on the question of baptism. And as he did so, uh, as they did so on the boat, Judson became a Baptist. And so did Luther, Luther Rice, who went on that same boat with Adoniram and Anne. The other missionaries were on a separate boat, and upon their arrival, some months later, there was this awkward realization that they could no, really, no longer really work together. And the result was that Luther Rice uh, was sent home, raised funds for Judson's mission, and by this time, uh, from the Baptist churches, leading to the founding of the first National Baptist Organization called the Triennial Convention in 1814. Meanwhile, while in Burma, uh, they had arrived July 13, 1813, and the judges spent the next 10 years learning the language and sharing the gospel. And during this time, Judson developed a grammar and dictionary of the Burmese language, translated New Testament. He printed and distributed thousands of tracts. 
and he began to hold public discourses following the style of the Burmese religious teachers, sitting on the ground in an open tent, inviting people to stop and converse. And it wasn't until six years into his ministry that he finally baptized his first convert. By 1822, he could count 18 converts after, 20, after 10 years of ministry. Uh, but everything changed in 1824 when a war broke out between Great Britain and Burma, and he was suspected of being a British spy by the Burmese government, and they couldn't distinguish between who was an American and who was a, a Brit. And Judson was thrown into what was called a death prison, a hut with no ventilation where over 50 prisoners of both sexes were bound in fetters and kept in very disgusting conditions. At night, their feet were tied to bamboo shafts lifted off the ground so that only their shoulders remained on the ground to prevent them from escaping. Um, they were fed scraps of rice. There was illness, beatings, cruel treatment. Judson, it seemed, was beginning to die. Meanwhile, his wife, Anne, did her best to secure his release, even trying every relationship, every friendship, and even personally appealing to the king and queen of Burma. But there was really, there was something else going on. Anne was pregnant. And on January 26, 1825, Maria Elizabeth Butterworth Judson was born. That, what would it have been like for the Judson, for Judson and Fetters to see his wife approaching the fence carrying a baby girl in his arms? At that time, the war worsened and the economic effects were felt by, by the Burmese. Food prices soared, smallpox, diseases were going around, and Judson languished in prison. And then Anne began to get sick herself. And when Adoniram got news that Anne was dying, uh, taking pity on him, the prison warden allowed Judson to leave, still in shackles, under guard, to take his baby Maria around the village begging mothers to have compassion to nurse his little girl. Driven nearly crazy from his suffering, Judson struggled to make sense of everything. His daughter was starving, his wife was nearly dead, his translation work seemed to be lost, and he seemed like he was going to die. Yet somehow God sustained Judson's faith, and miraculously, baby Maria held on to life, and eventually, Anne also recovered. Much of what they suffered through those days was due to the prayers of believers thousands of miles away. Finally, after a year and a half, Judson was released from prison. He had been in prison since June 1824. For the next 25 years, Judson labored tirelessly in Burma. And in his labors, Anne succumbed to spinal meningitis and died less than a year after his release. Maria, his daughter, followed her mother less than a year later. She was two years and three months old. But before her death, Anne had written a book entitled A Particular Relation of the American Baptist Mission to the Burman Empire, which was published in Washington, D.C. in 1823. By publishing company called Mission Press, it was started by Luther Rice for the sake of bringing attention to world missions. And shortly after her death in 1829, James Knowles wrote the memoir of Mrs. Anne H. Judson, late missionary to Burma. Together, these two books went through hundreds of printings and were bestsellers in America and inspired many thousands to give themselves to the missionary cause. As a fruitful as Judson's work was abroad, uh, it's very likely that foreign missions had an even greater impact in the saving of souls in America. 
thousands of men and women read the stories of Anne Judson and vowed to follow in their footsteps, inspired by their heroic dedication and love for their Savior. So, as we consider the lives of those who went in the first waves of foreign missions, they went with an understanding that the, the nearness of Christ's return was likely very close, inspired by the Great Awakenings and the Second Great Awakening. Uh, there was a renewed emphasis of trying to get the gospel to the ends of the earth to even to hasten the return of the Lord. Um, as uh, the Civil War took over uh, in, in America and difficult and difficulties of the Gilded Age came into play and theological liberalism, many within the church began to see uh, a decline in Christianity and began to speculate whether or not there would be a rapture of the church prior to uh, the, the great uh, final time of tribulation and call of God's people. So I hope that through this study you've been able to get a sense of where our church family has come from and thinking about uh, millennialism and uh, the historic uh, partnership that we have had with foreign missions as well. Thank you for coming and listening today.